today on Ag News Daily. If we could understand how a plan is dealing with this on a molecular level, then probably we can come up with a better strategy. The way we approach this problem is we are looking at this corn plant as an entire system. Welcome back to the Ag News Daily Podcast, jumping in right away on a Tuesday. Took President's Day off, so today is February 20th, 2024. Seems like the beginning of the year, Delaney, always starts with uh, quite a few missed market Mondays. Well, there are a lot of holidays, I suppose, where the markets are closed. Yeah, that's right. We'll have to keep an eye on that to see if it is heavier in the first part of the year. Might have also been the way that uh, New Year's fell this year. But nonetheless, let's get right into some weather headlines. We are talking wildfires for the first time in 2024. Dry weather in the Southern Plains will increase the possibility for wildfires today and tomorrow night. We've got winds sustained 15 to 25 miles per hour with gusts up to 35 with relative humidity below 10%. This elevated fire risk will continue through the end of the day Wednesday as an incoming cold front travels through most of the U.S. Record high temperatures are forecasted for parts of the Texas Panhandle. Iowa could see a push to theirs as well. So it looks like that heated uh, heated stationary area there prior to that front moving through spans most of the middle portion of the country. Of course, that's what we're looking at next. We will have more winter temperatures coming in Thursday and Friday this week, Delaney. But as of today, it looks like it's a pretty decent day throughout most of the country besides that wildfire risk. All right. Well, we should be seeing warmer temperatures, I think, too. Is that right, Tanner? That's correct for at least the next two days. Fantastic. Well, last week, I know we were busy at the World Ag Expo and at a leadership program I was a part of. So we missed sharing with our listeners the USDA Ag Outlook Forum's um, expectations here for the year ahead. But Tanner, we do have some stories here about what was talked about at USDA's Ag Outlook Forum. They have these, of course, every year. And this year's was the 100th Ag Outlook Forum. Secretary Vilsack again proposed innovative approaches such as utilizing the CCC or Commodity Credit Corporation funds to address some of the farm bill funding challenges that will be needed for this one and a half trillion dollar farm bill program that's currently in the works. He said by using that, they can move forward with funding without compromising other priorities. He also apparently highlighted the need to balance support for both agriculture programs and for health and nutrition programs. He advocated for smaller producers as well for programs like the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities to provide new revenue opportunities for all farmers. We also saw out of the Ag Outlook Forum last week, the first official estimate here from the USDA as far as what acres will be here in the coming year ahead. USDA Ag economists said they expect corn acres to be down about three and a half million acres compared to a year ago and are penciling in right now on their balance sheets, 91 million acres of corn with an average yield of 181 bushels per acre. They expect soybeans to increase this year to 87 and a half million acres. That's up 4 million acres compared to 2023 with an estimated yield of 52 bushels per acre. But Arlen Suderman 
with Stonex and a few others have said it's too early really to put stock in these USDA numbers. We're still not in planting season officially. A lot of things can change between now and then. And a lot of farmers are sticking to their conventional rotation. So he said not to put too much stock in that early number USDA shared last week. But they also had some protesters, Tanner, at the Ag Outlook Forum. Uh, protesters tried to interrupt Secretary Vilsack's remarks on Thursday. They were apparently upset about uh, the money that was used to help with avian influenza. Protesters shouted things like, you stole billions of dollars to bail out the chicken industry. And they also accused Secretary Vilsack of creating the bird flu pandemic, Tanner. So that was a little bit of an interesting twist there to last week's Ag Forum. That's interesting. I did not see that article. That's kind of uh, comical, at least a little bit. looks like we might have some positive outlook for those in the dairy industry, finally. This article states the U.S. may capitalize on reduced global dairy production. Several regions, such as the European Union and New Zealand, are having decreased dairy production and dairy herd numbers. Falling output could result in reduced exports of you of dairy to other portions of the country, allowing this market to potentially give a boost to U.S. dairy prices this year. As the production from Europe and Oceania would provide opportunities for the U.S. dairy herd. At the end, it was down four hundredths of a percent as dairy heifer replacements were uh, on the downslide for the fourth year in a row since 2020. Slaughter rates in the U.S. of dairy cattle also continued to jump as prices in 2023 were not that great. Of course, we reported on that multiple times Delaney, but we'll continue to keep an eye on that because the declining dairy heifer numbers could impact U.S. milk production. So we could end up with a little bit of a perfect storm here for our dairy producers. The number of dairy replacements in the U.S. has plummeted 15% during the last six years and is at a 20-year low, according to the USDA's report. They will continue to keep an eye on that. The imbalance is coming from the latest research tied to embryonic placements of beef cattle calves, beef cattle embryos into dairy cows to produce U.S. beef continued replacement stocks rather than breeding or breeding for replacement heifers. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. Raising dairy heifers has been losing for farmers in the most recent years. It's turned out to be a loss of about $600 an animal. But if they breed and place those embryos within those cows for dairy, for beef cows, uh, for beef calves nonetheless, that seems to provide them a better chance of profitability. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that, Delaney. But according to those two sources, looks like this could be an up year for those dairy producers. And I'm sure they're excited to hear that. Especially as we continue to see consolidation as reported by the latest ag census. I'm sure that is a positive headline there for dairy farmers, Tanner. That's correct. 
Well, keeping in line here with some beef news, although beef export numbers were down in 2023 compared to the year prior, we still saw the third highest annual value for beef exports in 2023, according to the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Beef exports were down from the record number we saw in 2022, but they're continuing to export as adding value to the beef carcass and finding new cuts and ways to do business with partners outside of the U.S. shores. While beef, while beef exports were below the record total from the previous year, we saw that nearly 14% of all U.S. beef product sent out of the United States included some specialty value-added cuts, such as the tongue, heart, and kidney tanner, which are not cuts we typically eat here in the United States. As we look at total beef exports for 2023, they totaled 1.29 million metric tons with an annualized value of $860.8 million. That was down 12% compared to 2022, but still, like I said, the third highest value we've seen here for beef exports. They said, of course, 2023 was a challenging year, especially in the, our largest Asian markets where economic conditions have been in flux. But the year ahead, we're expecting to still see some challenges, especially given that we're going to have the smallest cow herd, or we do have the smallest cow herd that we've seen here in 50 years. But exports are expected to still remain relatively strong here for the year ahead, Tanner. Going to see maybe a slight drop again this year, but all in all, exports are on the rise here for U.S. beef producers. Yeah, I had seen that as well. Some great statistics to share there. Another statistic that I have to share is only 27% of U.S. farmers and ranchers used precision farming practices for either crops or livestock in 2023, according to the USDA. In late January, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or also known as GAO, released their study on the benefits and challenges of technology and adoption within U.S. farm operations, as well as ranches. High upfront costs were flagged as the largest barrier for some farmers, which is leading a lot of manufacturers to switch to a service as a solution type role. The GAO's role is to help improve the performance and accountability of the federal government as they look at technology, tech adoption by state, while the precision agricultural technologies was only used by 27%. There are some states that are leading Delaney. As you take a guess, which states do you think were the top three states in adopting precision technology in agriculture? I'm going to say California is one, um, Iowa and Illinois. So you got the number three state, which is Iowa. Number one was North Dakota and number two was Nebraska. All South right. Dakota hits the fourth, Illinois hits the fifth as far as that goes. So we do not see California hitting into the top 10. And after my trip out to World Ag Expo, it did seem like there was a little bit of a lack of precision use in the high value crops because so much of that is harvested with hand rather than mechanically harvested. So quite an interesting there. Of course, the GAO is encouraging greater adoptions for the use of technology. They're pushing for further innovation and they're looking to continue to gather more amounts of data to help provide the opportunity for producers to use precision technology and identify those pain points 
that might be holding them back from adopting it. So there you go. A couple of stats to share today. Yeah, I really was thinking California, because of their high value permanent crops, would use more precision technology. Even considering that a lot of it has to be done by hand, I just have been watching in the marketplace and it seems like there's more technology geared at those crops right now. So I am surprised that it didn't make the top of the list. Yeah, there was a lot of focus out there about educating the, the growers and what technology is available. It was quite interesting. You know, obviously there's precision technology used when they're planting these crops because the orchards and everything are are definitely in a precision line and row, uh, mesmerizing as you drive by them. But yeah, a long ways to go. It certainly sounds that way, Tanner. Well, I think I am out of headlines here for today, aside from taking a look at the markets. What about you? I do have a little Russia-Ukraine news. Russia did advance in Ukraine as it continues to face criticism over Novani's death last week. Ukraine's armed forces said that they repelled Russian attacks near Zaporizhzhia region, uh, described it as a very difficult night. International pressure is continuing to grow on the United States to act more about funding as Kiev's supplies are running low. Sweden, meanwhile, announced a record $683 million aid package for Ukraine, stating that Ukraine's not only defending its own freedom, but is defending the freedom of all of Europe. And the mother of Russia opposition figure, Alex Novani, like I said, had a video on Tuesday that was appealing President Putin to allow her to see her son. His body will not be returned to the family for at least two weeks. So continuing to keep an eye on what's happening there. But what do markets look like? Well, Tanner, as we take a look here at markets after being closed yesterday, of course, for President's Day weekend, overnight corn and soybeans are trying to push higher here on some technical buying. We're still seeing net short positions in the soybean markets, but a lot of folks are suggesting we might be hitting here our low and we might see this market really turn back around. Soybean and corn hit a three-year lows and wheat dropped to some of the lowest prices we've seen here in three months. So that's the big question mark right now is, are those lows in? Were those the lows we're going to see here until harvest season? That's a question mark. But we're also starting to see the funds get out of some of those net short positions, which might be an indication that, in fact, the lows are in. March corn here this morning up four and a half cents at 721. March beans up 13 and a quarter at 1185 and a half. Taking a look at the wheat contracts here, the March Chicago contract up five and three quarters cents at 566. March hard red winter wheat up five pennies on the board at 572 and a quarter. And March spring wheat up two cents at 656 and three quarters. Livestock, these are going to be prices from last week as they were not open, of course, yesterday. This morning, April live cattle will open on the board at a buck eighty-seven fifty-five. March feeder cattle at two fifty-one oh two and a half, and April lean hogs at eighty-five twenty-two and a half. Tanner for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, we are chatting with Rajib Saha, the associate professor in chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, to talk about some really interesting technology and research they've been working on there at UNL. So let's turn it over to that conversation. 
Well, as we consider the number of extreme weather events that have increasingly happened over the last few years, you know, you look at 2023 in the rearview mirror here, we had multiple over a billion dollar weather events. And we're going to break down some of those weather events and how they're impacting the corn plant at a molecular level today with Rajib Saha, an associate professor in chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Rajib, thank you so much for joining today on the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. So before we dig into some of the research that you and your team have been doing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, let's chat a little bit more about your background and how you found yourself at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Well, yeah, um, so I'm, I'm through and through chemical engineer. So uh, my, my bachelor, master's, PhD, all are in chemical engineering. So I was born in Bangladesh and uh, I got my bachelor there. And then I got my master's and PhD in chemical engineering from Penn State. Um, so um, working in plants is always uh, sort of my uh, passion. Why? Because you know I was born in Bangladesh, which is an agro-based country. And uh, plants, especially like crops, uh, um, they are kind of the lifeline uh, of the country because it's, it's a highly populated country living in a very small space. So, and then when I saw that these kind of weather events, as you mentioned, like uh, extreme weather, that how, how that are affecting uh, our farmers. So uh, I always wanted to work uh, with plants, but as you know, that my, my background in chemical engineering. So I just wanted to bring in uh, the chemical engineering or an engineer's perspective in addressing this issue. So after I got my PhD, I did a sh short postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I was looking for a place where uh, I, I believe I will fit well. And um, since I worked in corn for my PhD, um, uh, I don't think there would be any better place than uh, Nebraska. And <laughs> now I'm here. Yes, home of the corn huskers. So that does yeah. seem like a good fit being at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I appreciate you sharing the background and I especially appreciated what you said about it being plants being the lifeline because they really are. And as you look at some of those major weather events here that we've seen, I believe in 2023, we had over 20 individual $1 billion weather events that impacted crops and livestock. And so as we look at the you know, increasing number of weather events and the impact that has specifically on the crops we grow, such as corn, it makes a lot of sense to me that you've been studying the effects of temperature and other weather events on corn plants. But talk to us about the research that you're doing today. How did you set up that study and what are you specifically focused on seeing from a conclusion standpoint? Absolutely. Great question. So uh, as I said, like, you know, I would like to uh, bring an engineer's perspective in this problem. So over the, over the years, uh, there are plant scientists and breeders, they're working to deal with these issues. It's nothing new. And as you mentioned that uh, the whole uh, weather events uh, or weather driven events, they are getting worse uh, every year. So the, the question that we are asking, like if, if we could understand how a plant is dealing with this on a molecular level, then probably we can come up with a better strategy. So the way we approach this problem is not looking at a specific part of the plant, like we are not looking at just the root or let's say the leaves or for corn, not the, just the corn uh, kernel uh, or the corn cob, 
we are we want to look at the plan as itself like in engineering that is called systems level study so we are looking at this corn plant as an entire system so you can you can think it like a sort of a wholesome study because we believe that um, that if you add, if you just work on a single individual um, organ like root or stem or leaf or seed you will have some sort of a local perspective so we wanted to develop a global perspective so in that we would like to build a computer model that will mimic the entire plan so what is the beauty of it is if you build a computer model that represents this plant then you can you can come up with different conditions like um, high temperature like low temperature like high temperature for five days followed by not so high temperature for 20 days and then maybe uh, 10 days of extremely high temperature so you can you can you can play around with these different conditions and see how the plant responds so when you have that kind of uh, model and the results out of it then you can focus on the changes the plant is making to deal with that so what we have seen that the plants have a different way of dealing with heat stress versus cold stress meaning that if we have a weather event in which as you mentioned there are so many 90 plus or 100 plus days in the midwest uh, how the plant deals with that and then the other extreme is maybe uh, in, in the early spring or late spring, we have a winter snap of five days, like extreme cold temperature. That is not good either. So what we have found that in both the cases, plants have, uh, or in this case, maize or corn, has a different way of dealing with this. And mostly it's down to the fact how it can make use of, let's say, for the sake of higher temperature. Because when we when when the temperature is high, the, 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 what you expect probably is that, okay, I have huge amount of sunlight, the plants can use them, uh, photosynthesize, use the leaves. So that's it. So why does it, uh, like, you know, why does it get bothered about all these things? So what we have found that, uh, at least based on our computer model, is that, yeah, it has leaves, fine. It can use the sunlight, that is fine. But there are other things within the plant that we call bottleneck. So. For the lack, lack of better example, we can we, you can think it like, well, when you drive on a US highways or a state highway, sometimes let's say some portion of the highways, uh, you will have multiple lane, but suddenly like after 10 miles, 15 miles, you need to merge and you, you are basically driving at a one lane highway, right? So that specific stretch would dictate the, the speed or the overall time that you need to reach from point A to point B. So what we have figured out is that within the plant, if you think it like a highway, even though leaves, you can consider it as an interstate, uh, when, we, when it gets to stem or other part of the plant, there are a lot of this one lane highway, which is why it cannot make the best use of uh, this process, which is photosynthesis. So it can produce all the sugar, but the sugars need to be transported and need to be stored within the corn kernel right so that is one thing we, we have also seen that for, for doing all this the plants need to produce energy it needs to produce energy and in this case we call it a molecule which is atp so it needs to be produced all of us living beings we need to produce energy so that is also a bottleneck that is also limiting in this case so more sunlight or higher temperature doesn't necessarily mean 
that you will have higher energy. And the other part is you also need to balance uh, some of the things within the plan and that balance gets off when um, uh, the plan goes through this kind of high temperature. Similar thing, or uh, I can say for, for the cold temperature, although this is slightly different. On the flip side, we have seen that there are certain ways uh, it could deal with both the, the high temperature and low temperature. There are also some similarities, although there are not very many. So all in all, our approach is to build a computer model so that we can study these different kinds of weather events and have a molecular level understanding. Finally, what I could say is that with the help of our collaborator who are from France, uh, we also have seen that we know that uh, in the soil when a plant grows, or in this case, when a corn plant grows, there are other microbes within the soil that kind of uh, like that help the plant, but in essence, they also get benefited by the plant. So it's kind of a mutualistic relationship. So we have seen that there is one fungal uh, species. We could see that if we can make sure that that specific fungus is in abundance around the root, some of these bottleneck or the gridlocks or the single lane highways can be removed. Mm -hmm. So now that part has been, um, has been tested um, by our collaborators. So that is one of the examples where the model prediction, the model has predicted something, and then we have some experimental measurement to verify or validate that. So overall, I could say that our, our approach is to use some experimental data, build computer model, predict something, and have the experimental biologists to test some of the things. And the idea is to have better understanding so that uh, we, we can design, engineer corn to which can have the arsenal to deal with uh, this kind of weather events. I'm sorry, it's a long, long winded answer. No, that's okay. I think it's a really good background. And I appreciated the analogy of looking at it from a road highway perspective. I think that helps paint the pictures for me and probably our listeners too. But I think my question to, you know, nail this point home is, okay, it's great you're doing this research, but at the end of the day, what do you hope to accomplish from it? Are we talking a change in genetics? Are we talking a change in our crop protection? What, what is this research's long-term goal? So the long-term goal is uh, a combination of both that you mentioned. So genetics is absolutely what we what we what we want to explore because, as I said, some of these uh, grid locks can we uh, can we do something within the plant so that those are not grid locks anymore? Or in other words, can we reduce the number of grid locks? And that will be dictated by genetics. Now the other things are more down to the soil that we use. So making sure that we have more beneficial microbes within the soil, that would also help the plant. So going forward, the way I see it, it has to be a combination of both genetics, cultivation practice, um, and all, all of the above, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time joining us on the podcast That's today. That's unfortunately all the time we have, but really appreciate the insight and the background in the research that you're doing. It sounds like really exciting and really important stuff for the corn industry. Again, thanks a lot. Um, and I, I'm really glad that through your podcast, if I could reach out even uh, 
a handful number of farmers and they understand why we are doing what we are doing. I think our, our job is very well done. Well, thanks, listeners, for hanging out with us today. Another great conversation. Delaney and I will be back tomorrow, but don't forget to find us on social media before you leave. But for today, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let him go? Let's let him go.